Has anyone heard the one about George W. Bush and Moses? Well, apparently when George W. Bush was president, he and his detail went into the city so he could go out to lunch. And he's about ready to go into the restaurant. And he sees a man not looking at him and he says, Hey, Moses. The guy doesn't look up. Hey, Moses. And the guy looks up and takes off running at a dead sprint. Bush was in pretty good shape as a president, so he takes off after him. He and his whole presidential detail sprinting after this guy. Moses, Moses, stop. Moses, I just want to talk to you. Eventually, he catches Moses. He said, Moses, I'm a fan. I just want to talk to you. Why did you run? And Moses says, the last time I listened to a bush... 40 years in the wilderness. I'll never do it again, I promise. Ever. (laughs) Never again. I actually heard that from a historian, so it must have some credibility. Why did I bring that up? I don't know. I've lost my mind. Because we are talking about Moses today, not the Moses of jokes or imaginations, but the real historic Moses. And Moses is important. And that means we're in the book of Exodus to learn about Moses. Uh, Exodus is an important book of the Bible. Uh, it's important because it's all about exiting enslavement. The people of God are enslaved in Egypt. They've been there for a long, long time. God redeems them. He sets them free and they leave enslavement and they head toward Jerusalem. And those are interesting historical facts, but they're also important for us as Christians. They're important for us as Christians because by divine design, those historic events prefigure something even more important. God doesn't redeem us out of Egypt, but he does redeem us out of the slave market of sin. The Bible uses that kind of terminology. He redeems us and sets us free from enslavement to sin. And he has us on our way, not to the old Jerusalem in the Middle East, but to the new Jerusalem that Galatians chapter 4 says comes from above. And we as Christians, sometimes in the Bible, are, are called exiles, we're called sojourners, we're called strangers, just like the Israelites are after they're freed and they're on their way to the old Jerusalem, designed by God to help us even cope with our time during our pilgrimage, wandering, whatever you want to call it, on the way to the new Jerusalem. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 actually connects these dots. 1 Corinthians 10, we won't go there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about the wilderness wanderings. It talks about redemption out of Egypt on the way. And the Apostle Paul, basically, I'm paraphrasing, says, Christians, you need to learn from this. Christians, you need to learn what not to do on your way to the new Jerusalem, how to act and how not to act. And so Exodus is actually a really important book for us as Christians to learn from. Today we're going to be in chapter 33, and in chapter 33 we're going to learn all kinds of things, uh, significant things primarily about God and about God and His greatness, and about how important it is for Moses to know something about God and His greatness if he is going to lead the people through the hardship on the way to Jerusalem. 
So I hope you have a Bible with you and you can find Exodus 33. I would love to get through 33 and 34 today. This is week 17 of a four-week series. And so we're getting close to being done, uh, but we'll see how things shape up. I won't tell any more jokes and maybe we can go faster. Exodus 33, 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people who, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. That's redemption talk. You, you freed them through my power to the land of which I swore I keep mentioning this, I'll mention it again. Think oath, think vow. This is covenantal kind of talk. God oaths, God vows. He swears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring I will give it. So I'm going to keep my word. This is going to happen. The promise that was made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, it it is going to happen no matter what it's going to happen. And what's interesting about the fact that he quotes that to your offspring, I will give it in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. It stresses the point that that's actually a messianic promise. It's not offsprings plural. It's offspring singular who is none other than the Messiah. And so this has to happen, even though the the people of Israel have been disobedient and they're worthy of never going to Jerusalem, even though that's the case, no matter what, even if they don't get there, no matter what, the land is going to be given because ultimately we have to have the Messiah born who's going to save his people from their sins. So notice the connection there. Verse 2 says, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. In that land, there won't be any idolaters. There won't be any enemies, in other words. It's a type of the new creation. And since we're on the other side of history, we said, that's right, it is. It prefigures the new creation where there won't be any more enemies and there won't be any more pain and there won't be any more hostility against the people of God. Verse 3 then goes on to say, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Why so severe? Why did that just happen there? Well, in the chapter before this, and if you weren't here last week, I'll just fill you in. It's the golden calf incident. It's the gross, high-handedly, ugly, awful, stomach-turning golden calf incident. You know, Moses is gone for, for just a short time, and what happens? The people are busy denying God, breaking the covenant that, that they have between themselves and God, and it was awful. It was a, it was, it was a disaster. And so here God says, because of that, I'll make sure that the messianic promise is fulfilled, but as it stands right now, I won't be among you. I won't be with you. And the people see it for what it is. If God isn't with us, how awful, how horrendous, and how bad. And so they're not going to celebrate anymore, even in the way they're dressed here. They're mourning. Verse 5 says, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I won't dwell on it too much, but that came from the last chapter. They're like stubborn oxen animals, which is probably used on purpose because they made a golden, stubborn ox animal to worship. And what do idolaters do? They make images like themselves. How ironic. But you're that kind of people. For 
if for a single moment I should, I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. I think that's just an interesting statement that given who you are and given who I am, if it were for just a moment, apart from a mediator, you'd be consumed. Not really the God of pop culture. Verse 6 says, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. So this is not the tabernacle. This is something different on the outside. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Stressing that again. Now picture this. Picture this in verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, I've never seen a pillar of cloud, but here's a pillar of cloud, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. So the Lord is not the cloud, but it symbolizes the Lord's presence in the tent and so it's something supernatural but objective that the people could see to say in their minds or out loud, something extraordinary is happening in there. To strain their ears, to strain their eyes. What in the world is going on in there supernaturally? What has been being revealed to our mediator leader Moses by God? Verse 10 then says, And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. So this is extraordinary, right? Literally extraordinary. What is happening? Something great is happening. Verse 11, thus the Lord, how about this? Used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Maybe they're to guard it as a warrior man. So, so now, now what we're going to do is, now that we're outside of our tents, straining our eyes and our ears, let's listen in. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Chapter 33, verse 17. Then it says in verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, if that's been the case, please show me now your ways that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. What's happening? What's happening is God said, I'm not going to go with you. Rank, gross idolaters. And Moses is the, the mediator prayer. He's praying, if you will, even though he's meeting with God uniquely like this. And he's saying, please, how could we be successful apart from you and your presence? Please, Lord, please be with us. Please make yourself known to me uniquely, extraordinarily. It will be a failure apart from this. And, and Moses is smart, and I would encourage you to be smart too. If you ever attempt to appeal to God, and I think you should, don't appeal based upon, well, the people aren't that bad. I mean, the calf thing, you know, whatever. Let bygones be bygones. 
we're all pretty good and you know our hearts. <laughs> he doesn't do that, but he does appeal to the Lord based upon the Lord's own promises. He appeals to the Lord based upon what he's already said to Moses and what he's already said to the people. And that's a good way to go because God is going to keep his word and his covenant oath. And then I love verse 14. I probably showed up just for this part. Verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I'm going to answer your request in the positive is what I'm going to do. Isn't it interesting too, just to make an important theological connection. I'm with you and I give you rest. When I'm with you uniquely, extraordinarily, there's Sabbath, the word for rest. Which is interesting because if you trace this through, if we go back to the garden, God is with Adam and Eve. And then because of sin, he's not with them. And there is no Sabbath. Their separation. Then we are going to see, we're going to see the tabernacle, the, the unique presence of God. And so the people have a unique kind of Sabbath rest because God's with them. So they don't have to be afraid of their enemies. They don't have to be afraid of how they're going to, their needs are going to be met. They shouldn't anyway. Then when they get to Israel, then they're, then they're going to have not the tabernacle, but the temple, unique presence of God. And it brings a unique kind of Sabbath. And then if we keep going, we're going to see that Jesus calls himself the temple the unique presence of God with his people that gives us ultimate Sabbath rest because it's found in him, Christ our Sabbath, if we go to the New Testament. And then if we go even further in the new creation, when Christ returns and, and, and we're together with him in the new creation, we'll be with him uniquely, extraordinarily, permanently, and we will have perfect Sabbath rest. So this is not that, but it's, it, 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 it's connecting dots, looking to the past, looking to the present, looking to the future. When the Lord's with you, you have rest. And now I'd love to connect all kinds of other dots, but we won't, we won't do it right now. Verse, oh, Hebrews chapter two, the author to, to the book of Hebrews talks about, I'm paraphrasing now, but the Lord Jesus, um, being with his people in corporate worship, singing of the greatness of God with his people. Well, if the Lord is with us, then we have a unique kind of rest. It's why the Lord Jesus said, come to me and I will give you Sabbath. I'll give you rest. Okay, we better keep moving. Verse 15. And he, that is Moses, said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's, that's good thinking, Moses. Verse 16. From how, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? Yes, yes, yes. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Yeah, the unique presence of God with his people shows that they actually are his people. Verse 17 then says, and the Lord said to Moses, I made this all bold because I loved it so much. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So closeness, friendship, intimacy, Positive. Then verse 18 says, Moses said, please show me your glory. <laughs> Why would he do that? 
I think in light of the whole big picture and what we know has happened, what is going to happen, and the threats that have uh, been made, he's saying, show me your glory. He's saying, God, sh- show me show me what's true about you. Show me more about you. You say you know me. I need to know you better. I, I need to know you better because how in the world can I lead these people with conviction? How can I lead these people through good times and through bad times? This is a, this is a huge big deal. So I need to know you better so that, and, and know your ways more clearly if I'm going to do this. Show me your significance. And after all, Lord, he doesn't say this, but we'll do it for effect. I don't even have a Bible. Right? He's had some special revelation. But he doesn't have a Bible to learn theology, who God is and how he works. And so, God, I, I need a theology class. <laughs> I need you to teach it. I need to know who you are more clearly than I currently do. Please help me. Glory is one of those big words um, that we, it's a church kind of word. It literally means weightiness or significance. Uh, I think it's true off the top of my head that the chariots by the Egyptians, they were slowing down uh, because they had more glory. <laughs> well, that's not, that's, not the right, that's not the kind of glory that God has. It's not the kind of glory you want. But they were getting heavy, and so they weren't as successful. Significance. If somebody's going to argue a point, they might put a lot of weight on a particular argument more than another argument because it's more significant. Moses is saying, God, show me your greatness. Show me your grandeur. Show me who, who you are in a way that I don't know right now. The gravitas of God, if you will. That will embolden me. And if I can, by way of application, if you want to be able to, to, to do what's right, in good times and in bad times, let's learn from Moses. I've got to know who God is and I've got to know his ways. And I have a Bible. Let's keep going. Verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I'm going to preach to you, and I'm going to preach to you my name. And we can go back to chapter 3. Tell us, what's this God's name anyway? And he doesn't really answer. He just says, I am. Because as soon as you start likening him to other gods, you've missed the whole thing. I'm just the self-existent one. The one who's never had a birthday or never will have a birthday. I'm the one who is, in our text here, good, even if people don't think he's good. He defines goodness by who he is and what he does. He's good. He's gracious. He gives people what they don't deserve. He's merciful. He withholds from people what they do deserve. That's the negative side of grace. And notice also he's sovereign. I will show mercy on whom I will, I will show mercy. I'm free. And I'm free to do with my stuff, if you will, whatever I want to do. This might bring up more questions than it brings answers. No, it doesn't. But I'm going to tell you about who I am, Moses. I most certainly am. I am going to give you a theology class. Verse 20, but, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Which is a way of saying what? There will be limitations. 
I'm going to reveal myself to you truly, but there will be limitations because there has to be limitation because of who I am and because of who you are. Earlier it said he met with God face to face like friends. Here it says, you cannot see my face. What's going on? Well, we're in the world of metaphors. There's a close relationship, but now in a little bit different context, God is saying, but you you can't know me for who I actually truly am in my very essence. I'm God, you're not. Not only that, you can't see my face. Make sure you understand this because I don't have one. Just as an aside, because we get so much of our bad theology from best-selling books, God does not have a face. This is not the incarnate Jesus who is God and human. This is God in his very essence. God doesn't have a face. Remember John chapter 4, Jesus says God is spirit. God does not in his essence have a body. God is spirit. How about 1 Timothy 6.16? This might cause you to maybe go take some of the books you've purchased um, to somewhere and sell them. First Timothy 6.16 Who alone is, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, get this, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Even Moses. The Apostle Paul's not a Moses hater. He, he's well informed about what the Bible teaches. You can't see God's face because God doesn't have a face. But it's metaphor. He's making the point, you're never going to see me and know me in my very essence. It's always going to be accommodated and accommodating. Not to mention the fact that you're a sinner. More about that perhaps in just a little bit. How about verse 21? And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory, my greatness uniquely revealed to accommodate you, Moses, my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will protect you. How about God says, I will protect you from me is what's happening. This is great. And I will cover you with my hand, the hand that I don't have because God doesn't have hands. Symbolic, personal, care, concern, until I have passed by, I will protect you from me. Verse 23 says, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, the back that I don't have. Right? The idea is it's true revelation of God, but it is veiled for you, accommodated for you to experience. But my face shall not be seen. And I won't quote a bunch of theologians for you who are Christian Bible believers, believe that every word is true, that will say, yes, it's anthropomorphic language, accommodative language. But just since some of you like to come here just for the theological flex, one of my favorite writers says this, revelation is never immediate, univocal, or archetypal. And I won't even explain. I'm just dropping knowledge on you. Rather, it is always accommodated, mediated, analogical, and ectypal. Nowhere above the scriptures at the end of, the hi- of history or even in scripture do creatures transgress the barrier of finitude. To gaze on God's essence 
We are always hidden like Moses behind the rock as God's goodness and grace pass by. Yet because God condescends, that's another super important concept, to bring us into his fellowship, an accommodated revelation can be given and is given through creaturely signs. As one of the reformers said, when God speaks to us, he speaks baby talk. Trying to capture the difference between the one true eternal self-existent God and creatures. But this, this doesn't lessen what's happening. This is extraordinary. This is great. This is awesome. I just don't want you to think like Mormons anymore. God the Father doesn't have a body. Okay? you got to have this straight. This is classic old school Christian orthodoxy. But having said all of that, footnotes aside... Moses is having a unique experience that will truly reveal God to him. Fully, no, but truly, absolutely. And if you think about it in terms, again, we, we tend to think theology doesn't matter. In this case, Moses would say, what do you mean it doesn't matter? This is the very thing I've begged God for so I can know him better because it will be the very thing if I'm going to be a good leader that will empower my leadership and my convictions to not compromise and to be bold and to be courageous and to lead the people. I've got to be able to explain. I I have to be able to know who you are and I have to know what you're like and I have to be able to explain who you are to the people and what you're like to the people. By way of application... We got, we have to know who God is. And more than likely, it will bring all kinds of questions and bring all kinds of mystery. That would only make sense. Okay, verse, chapter 34, we're, we're there? Amazing. Let's go to 34. 34, 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. We learned about that last week. And I don't know what Moses' motives were and all the rest, but in a certain sense, it was right for him to throw them down and to shatter them because the covenant had been grossly violated and broken with the golden calf incident. And now God says, we're going to republish that. We're going to put it together again. Which is kind of interesting on lots of levels. Shows God's mercy, shows God's grace. It also shows that the moral law of God doesn't change. He doesn't say, well, I tried that. But now we're going to go law 2.0. The lesser, kinder, easier to accomplish version. That wouldn't make sense because God is still the same. And so he has the same moral law. And people are still obligated and always will be obligated to keep God's moral law perfectly, personally, and perpetually. It's not good news, but it's good and true and right. It's why we need a perfect mediator. So it is worth seeing. It's just, it's just stated again. It's going to be the same thing because God is who he is. And so the moral law, I'm stressing it that way on purpose, doesn't change. Then verse 2 says, Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Why? Because no one is spiritually fit, right? 
grossly in light of what they've done. I don't want to see any of them. They, no, they have no business. And, and, and Moses isn't perfect, but in the, in the narrative, I mean, he, he's the, he's, Let's go lowercase r, righteous. He's the righteous one. He's the righteous representative mediator who can represent the people better than anybody else can. So you at least see the concept and the idea. You have to have one like him to come as the mediator. Let no flocks or herds graze upon that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God is there preaching himself. I can't help but think about the New Testament that says we don't preach ourselves. But you know who does preach himself? God, right? And it only makes sense that he preaches himself. He's preaching himself. He is, as it says, if I knew where we were, I could tell you, proclaiming the name of the Lord. Verse 6 says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Double emphasis because that's really what's important. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Oh, tons of things happening here. I'm going to, I'm going to proclaim to you who I am, the Lord Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who knows everything, the one who is eternal, the one who is omnipresent and omniscient, the one who when he, when he loves those he's covenanted with, it's a steadfast love. It's a covenantal love. It's an irreversible love. It's a special, extraordinary kind of love. He mentions it more than one time. I'm that kind of God. I'm the kind of God that forgives, which assumes there's going to be atonement, merciful, gracious. But it does say, who will by no means clear the guilty. So he's a just God. And for us, sometimes we say, why does he show strict justice to some and show mercy and grace to others? I would remind you of what he said earlier in our study, and that is, I extend it to whom I choose to extend it to. He's free. I don't know why, but he can do whatever he wants to do with his mercy, whatever he wants to do with his grace causes us to have questions. It causes us to have our mouth open in awe, hopefully. How about God is not who we want Him to be, but He is, and He's just, and He's forgiving, and He's free. So how does one respond to that? How about verse 8? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He's different. He's unmanageable. He's undomesticated, but he's our God and I will see his greatness and significance and glory and grandeur and show respect where respect is due. Wow. If the Psalms had been written by now, he would say with the psalmist, oh God, who is like you? Psalm 71. Answer, no one. 
How about verse 9? And he said, I now, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Again, he's copping to it. He's admitting it. He's appealing to God based upon his, his love and favor, not based upon something else, which would be ridiculous. Verse 10 says, and he said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvel such as I have not been, that have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. All the people among you whom you are, whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Their land is going to be yours. This is conquest talk. Uncomfortable yet? I'm the God who's free to do with my things whatever I want to do. I'm going to give you the land of milk and honey. And with my help, you will conquer them. And you will possess it. Now, we could talk about how all the ites are bad actors and they don't deserve anything good. And we can go there. But maybe for the in the meantime, I, I don't mind just pushing you a little bit to think about how unmanageable God is. The one who defines goodness based upon what he does. Oh yes, it's a broken, fallen world, and everybody deserves, every ite deserves condemnation and damnation. That's true. But it might be good for us to read more of the Bible and learn that the God that we profess as Christians is not domesticated, is not under our thumb, is not running for office, but He is to be feared. And he is to be worshipped. I'm going to give it all to you. How about, are we uncomfortable yet? Someone once said that the duty of the pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So, some of you look really comfortable, so I thought I would try to afflict you. There's no one like him. Verse 12 says, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Remember where your loyalty lies. And if you covenant with the ites, no doubt you'll worship their false gods. 13 says, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down the asherim, all of their holy hardware for their pagan worship. You're going to destroy it. You're going to take it down. It's why oftentimes, it's one of the reasons why King Josiah is a good king in the Old Testament, because he tore down the high places, these kinds of things. Rediscovered the Bible and figured out, if you will, we've got to get rid of the pagan worship. Let's keep going. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. I like that too, to make us uncomfortable. 
typically, jealousy is bad. But for God to be okay with His people worshiping other gods would be immoral and wrong. It would be immoral and wrong for God to be anything other than jealous if we're talking about the one true and living God. Wow. That would be a moral virtue here. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they... Sorry to make you so uncomfortable, but here we go. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you have invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. It's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be troubling. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. And he goes on to explain. And now for a long section, he's just going to reinstate or restate the laws previously given. Which we don't need to go through. Let's just pick up some of this text when it says... Verse 27, if you will. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So write down the things we've been talking about in theology class. Because you're going to need to help the people with these things. Then it says in verse 28, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he, now it's going to shift to the Lord wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And he goes on to describe when Moses comes down and his face shines and he veils himself as God veiled himself so as to not terrify the people. But it does show supernaturally that he really and truly was not having something in his imagination going on, but something unique and he should be listened to and Something miraculous has happened, so it it credits him. It gives him authority, if you will. It bolsters his authority. Let's end with this today. We'll end with this. Freed out of Egypt, on their way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, to Jerusalem, taking the land from the ites, Do you think that Moses thought that Jerusalem is the ultimate promised land? Hard question, I know, and it's still morning. Do you think other Old Testament saints knew or thought that Jerusalem, filled with all the ites, is the ultimate. And I pose that question to you because sometimes we forget to realize that we have it on good authority, New Testament inspired revelation, Hebrews chapter 11, that talks about Moses and talks about David and talks about a whole bunch of other Old Testament saints and tells us that even they knew Old Testament Jerusalem in the Middle East was not the ultimate rest. Even they knew it had to be something else. And I think that's important for us to remember. Even we should know that they knew, so we for sure should know 
that it's something better and it's something else. If you would, listen to a few statements from Hebrews chapter 11 that does talk about Moses in chapter 11, verse 26. In verse 39, they did not receive what was promised. Even those who go in and actually get to enter in did not receive what was promised. Hebrews eleven thirteen talks about all these people who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Even when they enter in, they still recognize they're strangers and aliens on earth. That's important to remember. 14 of Hebrews 11 says they're seeking a homeland. Even when they're in the homeland, in the promised land, they're still seeking a homeland. And then get this, in verse 16 of Hebrews 11. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And the context tells us it's a heavenly city. Even they knew. So let me help you with your worldview and your theology to know, going back to Galatians 4, we're waiting for a Jerusalem that comes from above. The new creation Jerusalem. And we won't be taking flights on El Al to Tel Aviv to see it. It will come from above. The people of God long for that. How about New, Test, New Covenant Christians should know that if Hebrews 11 tells us that even the Old Testament patriarchs like Moses knew that. That's helpful theology also. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for the fact that we're able to learn. We confess that there are so many things we don't know, but we want to know more. We want to know more about your ways. We want to know more about redemptive history. We want to know more about Bible characters and what they knew and didn't know. Ultimately, we want to know you through the perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful that he loved us and gave himself up for us. The true and better Moses. The one Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18 who would come after him, who's like him, who we should listen to. And we're thankful to have the Lord Jesus, who will live and reign and rule forever upon his return. And we long for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you go, if there's anything we can do to help you, we would love to do that. Mike and Denise Holloway are up front on behalf of the whole church family. There's a membership class on Saturday that I'll be teaching. So if you've not joined the church, I'd love to have you in that class. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.